From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right. Let's say you want, Matt, to invest in space, as in I do. the cosmos. There is an ETF for that, to procure space ETF. Ticker symbol, you guessed it, UFO. Andrew Shannon, Chief Executive Officer of Procure AM, joins us this morning. Andrew, a lot of interest growing in the commercialization of space. We're looking at the SpaceX launch last Friday. Talk to us about your uh, space ETF. What's in your space ETF? Thanks so much for having me. So we launched UFO back in April of 2019, and we've seen the space industry go through some dramatic changes that's really opening up for the commercialization of the space industry. And so someone looking to invest in UFO will notice that the underlying index that our fund tracks um, actually focuses with at least 80% of the weight of the fund is actually in companies deriving a majority of their revenues from space, while up to 20% of the underlying index can focus on some more diversified companies that are major players in the space industry. Think your diversified aerospace and defense names, your Lockheed's and Boeing's. Um, but because it's not the largest driver of their revenues, that entire tranche is capped at 20%. So you're really looking at companies that are deriving significant revenues from space. So satellite companies, launch providers, companies that are relying upon space-based uh, systems and services. So um, you know, communications is a major driver, um, as well as uh, you know, uh, satellite operators and manufacturers as well. What, so I see um, your top 10 holdings include Dish Network, uh, which makes sense because the satellites, Garmin, I guess, also... Um, uh, Sirius XM, which a lot of people are listening to us on Sirius XM. What about the explorers uh, like Virgin Galactic, for example, or I know Blue Origin and SpaceX aren't uh, publicly accessible, but do you see a future in which we can be owning, you know, companies that make rockets and take people to outer space? Yeah, so you're already getting exposure to those companies in the fund. So you know, many people aren't familiar, but Boeing and Lockheed actually have a, a, a joint venture called the United Launch Alliance, which helps you know, send, uh, send things to outer space. Uh, Virgin Galactic, like you mentioned, is a holding specializing in space tourism. Um, you know, they're still working on their product and experience to be able to safely bring people to outer space. But some of those uh, you know, kind of topics that you're already mentioning are things that are already in the fund. And so although SpaceX 
being a private company isn't in the fund, their ability to help lower the cost of sending things to outer space is actually benefiting many companies in the portfolio. So think a company like Maxar, which helps build satellites. Well, if to the extent that someone can now purchase a satellite from Maxar and send it to outer space for significantly less than they could maybe even just five years ago, is now opening up for significantly more clients for the space industry. So they're already having knock-on effects. And then you look at this launch that you know they helped NASA send people to the ISS uh, just this past week. And you know, it's, it's almost like a BOGO special that SpaceX is offering for its clients, where NASA used to spend over $80 million a seat to send an astronaut to the ISS. It's now coming in in the you know, mid-$40 million range. So that frees up more budget for space agencies like the ESA, NASA, and beyond. So, Andrew, do you believe there'll be more space-oriented companies coming to the public markets? Will there be more opportunities for investors to, to invest in what appears to be um, a growing commercialization of space? We certainly hope so. And you're already seeing it in the SPAC market. There's been eight or so companies that have been named as the targets for uh, potential SPAC mergers. Our fund doesn't invest in a company that is a SPAC until it actually de-SPACs um, and, and the, the merger has fully gone through. So there is opportunity for more companies as they go public, whether via a de-SPAC, an IPO, or even spinoffs. Um, that could find their way into UFO. But right now, there's over 30 companies from around the world um, you know, with a, with a space focus that you can currently get exposure to in the fund. But we're not capped at the amount of companies that can be added. So we certainly will welcome more companies with a pure play, uh, space focus in the future. How big is this industry and what kind of growth are, should we expect? Yeah, so the uh, Space Foundation puts out the space report annually, and I believe in roughly July we should get the numbers for 2020. But in 2019, it was roughly a $424 billion industry. And you look at different research houses and banks, uh, Morgan Stanley's predicting by uh, you know, over a trillion dollars by 2040. Bank of America actually predicts um, that the industry will be about $2.7 trillion by 2045. Right now, roughly one-third of the commercial market is actually communications companies. And if you look at what these different banks are saying is going to be the, the main driver for the space industry in the, you know, the next 20 years or so, um, they point to broadband internet and communications. And that's something that our, our fund already has a pretty significant exposure to. So you, know, you can't really play the space industry without um, you know, incorporating communications and broadband internet and some of these other companies that are going to be driving that um, your potential growth. So, you know, right now, that's kind of the, the composition of the fund, but certainly as more areas like even resource ex extraction and infrastructure build out in outer space, um, even the militarization and defense of space, which is something that hasn't gotten a ton of attention, but it's clearly picking up. All these are areas that people um, could potentially get exposure to currently and in the future. Andrew, is there any sense that SpaceX will go public at any time in the future? Well, certainly Elon Musk uh, uh, likes to tease, uh, you know, that, that idea. Um, he's mentioned that potentially he would spin off Starlink, which is their satellite network um, business, um, before um, going public with SpaceX. And he's even said that he wouldn't go public with SpaceX until, um, you know, we have people on Mars. Um, you know, who knows, you know, if those timelines are, are accurate, but certainly there are some you know, really ambitious hopes. But there's also plenty of demand for investing in SpaceX through the private markets. And we've seen through stock and through debt, um, your Canadian pensions have had a, a very huge interest in investing in space, even beyond just SpaceX. But, you know, they've been able to access capital pretty easily and they've had some tremendous success. So, you know, maybe not a real rush. 
for them. But, you know, if the time's right, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past uh, Elon Musk to bring another company public. All right. We appreciate that. Andrew, really fascinating discussion there. Andrew Shannon, CEO of Procure AM. Again, they are the only pure play space ETF. It trades under the symbol UFO. So if you want exposure to space, Matt, there you go. Yeah. And it seems like something, you know, the, the kind of exposure that you want to have on the very long term, right? You yeah. want to just take this, put it in your pocket and not look at it for, I was going to say 20 years, but probably 10 years is, um, you know, we should be at Mars by then, right? Ten years. Yeah, it would then. be. I tell you what. You know, it's it's nice having uh, Elon Musk there uh, supporting the commercial uh, space flight. And uh, boy, if SpaceX ever were to consider going public, I think there would be huge demand because a, it's Elon Musk, uh, but b, it's space. It's pretty cool, and you can think about some of the commercial aspects going forward. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now let's get over to a company called Emblem, M-L, sorry, M-B-L-M, Emblem. They've disemboweled um, their name, which is very trendy lately. I think Aberdeen yes. did the same uh, this morning. Aberdeen. Mario Natarelli joins us. He's a managing partner at Emblem. And uh, Mario, you've recently done, conducted your brand intimacy COVID study. Um it's difficult, I think, for listeners to imagine what that is. Brand intimacy makes my childish mind think of Victoria's Secret. Uh, but when you put it together with COVID, I guess it makes sense with COVID also, Netflix and chill. But what, what exactly is the brand intimacy study? Oh, sure. Disemboweled and Victoria's Secret. That's a great intro. So <laughs> brand intimacy intro. is, yeah, listen, we make decisions based on emotion. Behavioral scientists have proven that. And yet most of what we do in the branding and marketing world is rationally driven. So what we wanted to do was measure not just how brands perform, but how do people feel about the brands that they use and love. So we're 11 years in on the science of understanding the bonds that we build with the brands that we love. All right. What did we learn the pandemic? I'm guessing, you know, obviously the, the pandemic upended our daily lives to so many different degrees. What did you find in terms of which brands performed well during this pandemic? Yeah, it was, see, you know, we did the study twice, pre and post pandemic, and we weren't sure what to dis we were going to discover. What we found out is that people bonded with brands more during the pandemic than prior. We thought would do extremely well, like Apple and Amazon continued to thrive and, of course, did very well. And then no surprise to many, Zoom uh, Purell and Netflix were fast risers and took advantage of our, you know, sequestered lives. So the biggest uh, winners during the COVID period um, were USAA. Is that right? Um, the United States Automobile Association? Uh, no, when it it's, comes to it's insurance financial company. services. Ah, the insurance company. Yeah. I got it. Okay, uh, USAA. Yeah. Uh, I'm USAA. reading as a as a right. gearhead is a different thing than <laughs> the banking and insurance conglomerate. Uh, yeah. How, how did they land in first don't... place? 
Yeah, good question. So financial services do historically very poorly in our study, which is a little ironic that the people we trust with our money, we don't have strong emotional bonds with. But USAA um, finished first in our ranking uh, post-COVID. This is a brand that really understands community. It's oriented around service members, um, really understands how you emotionally bond and connect with its stakeholders. So probably no surprise. It is interesting that most of the financial service brands that did well are not the typical iconic retail banks. So PayPal, USAA, uh, even TD Bank uh, rose up in the rankings. Uh, credit cards and, and the big banks all did um, you know, as poorly as they usually do in this study. I'm going to go out there and say I think USAA does stand for United Services Automobile Association, although we just call it USAA. I think that's the actual name for it. All right, we'll check. At yeah, least Wikipedia is showing me that right now. Anyway, who else did well? Overall in the study, you know, it's interesting. Brands that sort of uh, harken back to kind of fond memories of the past or kind of comfort-related brands, like Campbell's, for example, did extremely well post-COVID. Ben & Jerry's, for a brand that's all about indul indulgence, did extremely well. Um, automotive brands, surprisingly, withheld uh, and did pretty well during COVID, which we thought would uh, they would take a hit, but they didn't. Uh, so those are just some of the brands that uh, were strong performers. All right, Mario, I'm a Wall Street guy. I don't really don't care yeah. about uh, brands. I think you know marketing is just you know paint it blue and sell it to me. Um, well, let me tell you why you're wrong. Please <laughs> tell me, do, as a stock investor, do I care about brand value? So here's the deal: we rank uh, the most intimate brands, and then we compare them to the top performing brands in the Fortune 500 and Standard and Poor's Index. Our brands outperform those in revenue and profit every year, short-term and long-term. So if you aren't paying attention to this, you're missing something. I mean, the power of brands, Paul, is huge. Look at Ferrari. You think Ray's could get a valuation like that if it weren't for the brand? Yep. Yep, good point. I guess the, the margins help as well. So who, who do you think is going to stick in terms – because – you know, maybe post-COVID, when the lockdown's over, we're not going to see um, consumers care as much about PayPal as they did during, you know, their online shopping extravaganza. I think PayPal's done very well in our study over the 10 years. Brands that are going to receive, maybe Purell probably won't stick as long, or maybe Zoom may fade a little. I think those brands are working aggressively to build a product that's going to resonate with us beyond the pandemic. I think the brands that did extremely well, like Amazon and Apple, you know, increased their leads and uh, built stronger kind of portfolios. And I think they're going to, you know, see that advantage continue, obviously. Let me just say one more thing about brands. You know, what's interesting is that brands that are hardware related, smartphones brands do extremely well and better than the content or the apps or the services on the phone. So another thing to kind of think about is the role that technology plays in building intimacy. Hey, Mario, thank you so much. We really appreciate that very interesting study. Mario Natarelli from Emblem. Talk to us about brand intimacy and the value of brands. And, uh, you know, Matt, I kind of asked that question facetiously because I have seen a lot of studies that show a positive correlation between brand value and shareholder uh, returns here. And you bring up a great example you know, Ferrari and, and some of these other uh, mega brands that, that I heard the sarcasm in your I knew you were trying to you know, <laughs> play the devil's yeah. advocate to some extent. So yeah. I think it, it makes sense, though. I mean, especially I think we've learned more about the strength of brands during COVID than we than we knew. Well, All right. Thanks, thanks very much. Mario. Mario. We appreciate it. All right. Let's get our latest update on all things Wall Street. We do that with Shanale Basic. 
Bloomberg Wall Street reporter. Shanali, love to talk to you about you know, ESG investing. It's kind of been a little bit of a theme today for us, and it comes on the heels of the Biden uh, climate summit, the global summit from last week here. What's the perspective of kind of and our own ESG summit, kicking off yeah, today? No, uh, yeah, exactly. And kind of just get a sense of what's the the feeling from Wall Street's perspective as to is this really a long term investment theme that will be with us for some time? Well, yeah, that's the most important thing. It has to be long term because none of these things change over time. And with a lot of these issues, right, namely climate and also with social issues, namely race, um, they have been problems that have been brewing for a long time. And frankly, the financial industry has exacerbated in a lot of ways. So, you know, at the end of the day, you look back to the people who are counting on these investors, right? The, the people who have their pension funds at stake that have been very vocal and very loud and forcing these changes that, you know, really the the, the large asset managers are, are really starting to step up now, but hopefully kept to, um, to be held accountable to. So we have, as I said, this green summit kicking off today. It's a two-day summit. Um, there's some huge names. I know Francine yep. Lacroix talked to Al Gore. He's got to be kind of the poster politician for um, the green movement. And you're going to talk to Melody Hobson later today, who runs Ariel Investments. But she's also, I mean, she's now she's the chairwoman of Starbucks, but she used to be the chair at DreamWorks as well. A huge career here. What does she have to say about ESG? Yeah, it's really interesting because she's a major board member, right? A board of, uh, she's on the yeah. board of J.P. Morgan and, as you said, chair of Starbucks. So she has influence in that way. But they're also an investor, right, over at Ariel Investments. And so how do they vote with their feet, right? How do they hold companies to account? What we're finding is two sorts of approaches, right? You have this terminal headline right now on BlackRock's Larry Fick seeking activism, right? forcing those changes. Uh, Hobson's firm is trying to work with companies to, to really get them to be more constructive and change the way they hire suppliers, look at more minority-owned businesses uh, when it comes down to it. Uh, our Ariel in itself is really trying to invest in more minority-owned businesses as well as work at the companies they they invest in. There's something interesting happening that I wanted to point to. This coming weekend, for example, is Warren Buffett's annual meeting. What they are facing is also company, uh, their own shareholders who are very frustrated with social issues that they're facing, the, the impacts of their business on the customers and employees around them, and as well as environmental issues. Right now, Newberger Berman it has votes that are out there that are really trying to force change uh, among one of the biggest investors in the world. So it's interesting. We... This is growing momentum, clearly, Shanali, for, as you're reporting for uh, ESG. And it seems like the focus has been on environmental, maybe a little bit less so on social and governance. I mean, even though the tech companies screen well on you know, environmental, you take a look at some of their super voting share structures, just for example, and that doesn't mark well or grade well for the governance issue. Yeah, that's for sure. And there's a lot of pressure on the SEC to kind of change the way that they force people to disclose things, right? Because at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to disclosure on top of, you know, just 
companies saying that they're doing the right thing. And so, you know, on the social issues in particular, you know, we're coming up on one year since George Floyd has been murdered, right? We are also coming up on 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre. You know, these issues are very, very real to a lot of people who are demanding not just change, but also disclosure. And, you know, on top of climate, you're seeing these social issues really come to the forefront uh, of the investment community's minds and where can they use their own money to create mm. change and the race issues as well um, which we see in in all other facets of American life it's interesting that Melody Hobson uh, when she was named the chairwoman of Starbucks was the first black woman ever to be the chairwoman or chair uh, well I guess could only be a chairwoman of of any S&P 500 company. So she's making waves there. And of course, as you point out, running uh, aerial investments can also uh, vote as an investor. Shanali Basak, thanks very much for that. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Kevin Tynan joins us from Bloomberg Intelligence. He's our go-to guy when it comes to reporting on the automakers and um, a senior autos analyst. I don't know if you're a titles guy. He's Kevin, been doing this a, senior, a long time. On senior autos side. analyst. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I've been asking Kevin for advice on cars for at least 15 years, I'd say. So <laughs> He's a total car to go too. Down. He's, he's got the grease <laughs> under the fingernails. He's, he's the real I, I deal. actually... I actually, I know we're going to talk about Tesla, but before we get to it, you, me, and Paul have all been pretty interested in the Mach-E, and uh, I think that you've had a chance to drive Ford Mustang Mach-E. It's tough to get at dealership lots across America. It looks so cool, and I've heard positive reports, so I wanted to know, have you had a chance behind the wheel, and what what do you think? I I have. I had it for, um, for about a week a couple of weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, um, and I guess I was totally whelmed, neither <laughs> neither over nor underwhelmed by it. Um, and I have to say, it was a little chilly. So, well, let me give you two things that, that kind of jumped out at me. One was I had to drive it to the office, and I don't live far from this office, and we have charging stations here. Because you live I and work to, in Princeton, I guess. Right, right. So yeah. I wanted to give it back with to Ford with a full charge on it. So I had a, I, it, it charges at three miles of range per hour. So, so if I left it overnight, I would have had about, you know, 48 miles of range on it. <laughs> There's got to be a faster way, Kevin. Yeah, there, there is. But I mean, I don't have a, you know, a, a mm. level two charger in my garage. That would have just been plugging it into the outlet, you know, where I, where I plug my compressor. So, um, and then when it was full, it, it only read 180 miles of range. And then the other thing was, while I was driving it in that cold March morning, the you know the big iPad stuck to the dashboard froze, <laughs> so I couldn't I couldn't change the radio 
station. I couldn't change the temperature. I could, you know, because it's sort of like the way Tesla does it, where everything runs through that center, that uh. center screen. So once it froze and it restarted right away and was fine after, you know, I, I restarted the car. But, um, but it was just kind of strange that I couldn't do anything. You know, I had to listen to Hair Nation blasting. <laughs> <laughs> had to. <laughs> All right, Kevin. So our, our good friend Elon Musk uh, and Tesla report earnings after the close today. We know that their deliveries came in better than expected. What are you really going to be looking for this quarter? Um, you know, I think a lot uh, – the delivery number was similar to the fourth quarter. So, you know, I think a lot of things will probably be sequentially in line with – what we saw at the end of 2020, and I think I, – I don't know what, what other people want, but for me, I think what will be interesting will be the trajectory of the um, regulatory credit sales this year, right? Those were $1.6 billion last year, and it put them at you know $1.2 billion in profit. So mm. you know, it will be interesting to see how those um, – you know, reconcile to each other quarter to quarter as we go through 2021. Does you FCA know, buy all of those in order to make, you know, the demon, the beast, the the right. TRX? Yeah, and I think GM, you know, was did a little hedge and probably Ford as well, just in case, um, you know, in terms of the election and if things intensified before they had a chance to get, you know, Lyric and GMC Hummer and more bolt sales or whatever they wanted to do. But yeah, the, the, the majority of it was to the former FCA. And now that it's Stellantis, you know, that's, they're saying by next year, they won't need to buy any more credits. And I think that's what's, you know, again, that's, what's interesting to me is that you're starting to get, even if they're just compliance vehicles, you're getting competing automakers getting to the point where they're going to sell enough of them that they don't need to pay Tesla to be profitable. All right, that's where I want to go, Kevin. This is the, the money question, I think, for Tesla in this EV market. It seems to me that if I think about where the comments Volkswagen's made, the comments GM has made and Ford has made, that this, these, these are not compliance vehicles. It seems like they are really going all in on the EV market. Is that, in fact, the case, do you think? Well, look, I, they have to say that, right? And I've, you know, I, I recently drove the new Bolt EUV, and you're, you know, there with the engineers and talking to them, and it's a great vehicle for what it is. And, you know, and, and God bless them, you know, those those engineers and, and those General Motors people really believe in the vehicle, and they they don't want to hear it when I say, like, yeah, but you really don't want to sell it if it's losing money, do you? You know, and so... <laughs> um, it's something like they have to say it, and I think um, are they I'm losing not, money? Is convinced. there not a path to profitability? There will be, you know, as okay. as uh, you know, economies of scale and and raw materials cost comes down. There, you can see that path, and I think that's part of the reason why you get commentary from automakers that we're going to do this. And, they, and then they put a 10-year timeline on it, you know, and it's like, well, couldn't you do that faster if you really wanted to do it? Um, you know, why by 2030? Why by 2035 does it take so long to do this? Um, you know, and I, and I think that just comes back to the, to the profit dynamics that are currently in place. You know, look, Tesla's nine years in, and they did 500,000 units mm. last year. You know, it's not a lot. 
I actually drove around in a Bolt with Mark Royce once, and he was telling me how great it was. <laughs> and you don't want to contradict Mark Royce, uh, the president of GM, because he's he's a big dude, you know? <laughs> and he can get pretty serious pretty fast. But I was thinking, man, you have a 1963 Corvette C2 split window. Do you like this thing? you got to be kidding me. But he did seem very enthusiastic. Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks very much for joining us. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.